Welcome into story number seven. Seven's got a good sound to it. It's got a gravitas to it. This is a good one. I'm going to be joined by Rebecca Reed, who's the national sales rep for David Austin Roses. There's interesting timing behind this podcast. I wanted to speak to Rebecca for a while about David Austin Roses. And within the last week, David Austin Sr., of course, the founder of David Austin Roses, passed away. And I wanted to make sure that we told the story, not in a mournful way at all, but in a celebratory way of a 92-year passion combined with a 92-year journey of persistence to make David Austin Roses what we know it as today. So we're going to get right into this, and I felt it was best to let Rebecca tell us a little bit of the beginning story of not just David Austin, the company, but David Austin, the person. There was a family friend named James Baker uh, who ran the nursery down the road, so that's where he really kind of got his introduction to breeding. Uh, the gentleman was a lupine breeder. and um, But it was really in on his 21st birthday when his sister gave him A.E. Bunyard's book, Old Roses, um, that he fell in love with roses. And it really kind of opened his eyes. Um, you know, he was a hobbyist breeder. Um, and when I say that, he was way not successful at the beginning. He really had to learn a lot. And, you know, he, as he started uh, uh, playing around, he really loved the old roses. But at the same time, um, what was uh, in fashion in England and around the world was the modern hybrid teas. So he said, well, you know what? I'm going to kind of do my own trial. I'm going to do some of these modern teas, and I'm going to do these old roses, which I love, and I'm just going to, you know, see what the difference is. And, of course, the uh, old roses had a wider, excuse me, um, this beautiful character. They were graceful. They smelled gorgeous, but they were primarily in whites and pinks and blushes and rose tones. And then the hybrid teas ended up having a much larger, larger uh, range of color. And he said, you know, this is uh, something that is pretty good. I wonder what would happen if I started crossing them. So, you know, this is back when he's 21. Now, let's jump forward to playing around with this for years, maybe even 20 years here. Um, his first rose that he kind of brought out um, was Constance Spry. And tell me who Constance Spry was. I think you and your readers probably know, but you know who Constance Spry was? Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that's been interesting about this is one of my, the other things I loved about David Austin was the naming. It was sort of this yeah. historical checkpoints, too, from Gertrude Jekyll to Constance Spry. Yeah. And for... Those of you that don't know, you know, gardening and horticulture is one of these things, right, Rebecca, that right. it, it had these moments where it was huge. And then after World War II, sort of takes a backseat to some of this, but Constance Spry was one of the real groundbreakers in floral design. Yeah. There's a lot of people that think they're 
they're breaking ground today, but uh, bad news, she may have broken it before you did <laughs> 80 years exactly. ago. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that was in 1961 yeah. when, after all that playing around, and she was actually the floral designer for the queen. So he honored her by um, uh, naming this beautiful, beautiful rose um, uh, after her. So that's 1961, but the, the problem with Constance Fry was she only bloomed once. Mm. So uh, let's keep uh, playing around here. So by 1969, he had started kind of refining his breeding process um, and had found kind of a way to launch his first range of repeat-blooming English roses. Uh, Mr. Austin said, well, if the French have the Gallicas and the Scottish have the Scots, why shouldn't the English have um, repeat-blooming roses that are English roses? Because the rose has been so intertwined in England's culture and history. Um, but still, so we're now eight years out after Constance Fry. He's... Um, getting recognition, but he really is still up against so much because people are going, who wants who wants this rose? We're all about the hybrid teas now. So his wife, Pat, and we all know Pat Austin, uh, that lovely, uh, bright apricot to orange-colored rose that was very fragrant, she really backed him up. And for years, he continued plunking away. Finally. In 1983, all right, so his kids, he's been raising kids, he's been, you know, struggling to uh, stick with this rose passion that he has. Finally, in 1983, he introduces at the Chelsea Flower Show, Graham Thomas. And Graham Thomas, I remember when I was in design school at Clemson, seeing Graham Thomas in the Park Seed Catalog, going, wow. Look at that rose. That is an amazing climber. I've got to find a way to use this in the design. But the response from the press and the general public was just overwhelming. And that is the rose that really kind of launched his career. So, and, put that, um, and put that in perspective for a second, people, as Rebecca is yeah. sharing this with you, that when that happens, David is what? He's in his 50s at that yeah. point, right? Yeah, Absolutely. so we're talking about for 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 if we're all lucky enough, Rebecca, for mm-hmm. for more than half of someone's life, mm-hmm. he's working on these roses, and right. it's not until 1983 that mm-hmm. finally the the general public in the UK starts to pay a little bit of attention to this and is like, "Wow, where has this been? How how much of it do you think?" for David individually was just sticking with it. Was there any other like thing that you can remember that was like an undercurrent of, of, I know there was a a more of an aristocratic group that maybe helped support some of what he was doing over time, like the really hardcore rose collectors, or was it really just him sticking with it? Well, definitely he was sticking with it. And he had this desire and passion to create something no one else had created before with disease resistance, repeat bloom, and fragrance, and beauty, and grace. So a lot of roses have 
one or two of those characteristics, but not all of them. And you're very correct. Um, a lot of the aristocrats believed in him and, and helped him along the way. Graham Thomas was a good friend of his, a good mentor and a revered horticulturalist. So that carried a ton of weight. And then when he started winning gold medals at um, the Chelsea Flower Show, um, he and he became kind of a highlight for the visitors there. Um, that really helped the backing. So, you know, that helped bring more money in for him. The roses started selling. He could increase his um, funding for the facilities and then really put all that money right back into the rose breeding again. How, how, how large was the property? Do you know at that time, like in the early 80s? You know, I am I am not sure, but it was not a tremendous uh, piece of land, not yeah. by today's standards. When you you look at um, you know rose breeding facilities, it, it was basically uh, a family farm, and um, uh, he just gradually would add on over time. But you know, one of the things that I think really set him apart then and set him apart now is the quantity of roses that he would hand pollinate and hand you know hand cross to come up with just two or three varieties that he would introduce. Um, to this day, he is still and his staff is still doing everything by hand. You know, I've heard that they've been approached. Um, by companies saying, hey, we can help you speed up this process, and Mr. Austin didn't understand it. So he said, you know what, <clears throat> I, I do what I understand. I do what I know works, and this is how we're going to do it. So, you know, it was nothing to have 120,000 unique roses that you would then pick through and decide, okay, 8,000 of these are going to be grown out in the field. And then we're going to start calling them out. So eight years from now, ten years from now, we look at the top two or three varieties that are the winners that we're going to bring to market. And I don't know of anyone that puts that type of testing and commitment in place. That so is one of that, that. That's one of the things, Rebecca, that I also think for anybody that gets into gardening or horticulture. Mm-hmm. Time starts to lose the same definition that it does for many mm-hmm. people, right? Things right. are, you know, uh, you, you'll meet people in the technology sector even who will talk mm-hmm. about like research and development and they'll say, oh, we've had this in there forever and forever for them right. is like 36 months, right? Exactly. Where in the rose world, the tree world, the flower world, the plant world, it's literally sometimes decades and sometimes it's decades and it's still elusive that exact thing that you wanted. You don't get exactly there, but you get close. And, and yeah. I think that's another part of that that we're, that yeah. you see through the story of David Austin Roses is it's that continual pursuit and that huge long timeline. The things that you started to see seven, eight, nine years ago, it takes mm-hmm. you that long just to see, is it what I thought it was? Did it do what I wanted it to do? Was it disease resistant? Did it repeat right. the way I wanted it to? In, in, in knowing him and spending time with him and then now obviously working in the company, 
I would have to think, like you mentioned, that's still there, right? Like that's still one of the driving things behind selecting new varieties is knowing that it may take five or six years to see the fruits of that labor. Exactly. And, you know, you hear companies and there's, there's nothing wrong with this at all. But Mr. Austin never did for this. Where you would say, okay, we ha- let's say we have a rose that has <clears throat> looks fantastic, and we're going to sell off the top tier genetic. We're going to keep that for us, then we're going to sell off uh, the second tier and third tier genetics of this to other companies. He's never done that. It's top tier or nothing. Um, there are stories, and and this was recent. There was a variety that was going to be introduced at Chelsea. It, it had been hand-picked and selected. It was coming down the pipe. And then the last year, um, Mr. Austin saw it, and he said, I don't like this characteristic. Let's trash it. And he had no problem doing that. Um, he, he would see one little flaw or something that wasn't consistent, and what would many of us would have thought was a, a wonderful rose and we've been thrilled to have in our garden, he decided to destroy it. So, you know, that's that's a huge commitment to, to excellence. As we're, as we're talking about this, do you know what it reminds me a little bit of, Rebecca? It's a little bit like the Apple story, right? Mm-hmm. So we had, we had Microsoft that was just right. software. And we had Apple that was hardware and software. And Steve right. Jobs saw those two things always linked. That's also right. one of the things that, that does make David Austin a little bit unique too, that you know you do some licensing, but you've always been just as large of a grower as you were a hybridizer. And right. that's not the case for every rose firm, rose nursery that's out there. Could you talk a little bit about that? About there are, and for people that don't know, there are some nurseries that really just do hybridizing work, that they're not exactly. large-scale growers, where for you and for David Austin, you're both. You're, you're doing that hybridizing work, but you're also a large-scale grower as well. Right. So everything originates from England, and it has gone through that extensive trialing process. Not everything that is sold in England is sold in the U.S., and not everything that's sold in the U.S. is sold in England, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, you hear the, or read the number. Mr. Alston has introduced about 200 varieties um, that are sold throughout the world. Uh, for 2019, we have roughly 63 um, varieties that we sell actively wholesale in the United States. So what happens is <clears throat> when we decide, before we even actually um, bring something to the market here, uh, that bloodwood is brought over, it's quarantined, it's grown out, we actually put it in trial um, in various locations around the United States and watch it. And you know, some of the things that do really, really well here, tank in, in, in England. For instance, Carding Mill, an amazing um, uh, David Austin that's a shrub form. It's wonderful for both cutting. It is wonderful in the garden. Um, it does so well here because it likes our heat, but it does not do well in England. So we have it and they don't. 
Abraham Darby, which over here, everyone loves Abraham Darby. It does not do well in England. And they abhor it over there. So, you know, uh, I think they're even dropping Abraham Darby in England, and they are always roll their eyes when we tell them that Americans love it and it does so well. Mm-hmm. So basically what we do is once um, something comes to the U.S., we trial it here and we give them the green light that, yes, we absolutely can introduce it here. Then we make it available to our growers. Um, just the process of once we decide what we're going to grow um, takes two years to grow out in our field. It's listed uh, around Thanksgiving, and then it is graded not once but twice, um, once in the field, once in our facility, and then we ship the bare root roses out to our customers. So that can be large uh, 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 growers like a Pride's Corner or a Auto and Son um, that then redistribute it to their customers, or it can be direct to a retailer or a flower farmer or a wholesaler like a landscaper or um, someone who sells to uh, landscape contractors. A lot of people think, oh, I want to come to Tyler, Texas and see your beautiful rose stocks. Well, they'll be sorely disappointed because they're going to see a cold storage facility um, and no rose grounds at all. So, uh, do you you think? Do you think that David Austin, when you know, I don't know if, if you had a chance to have this conversation or if Michael or anyone has, did he in that '80s? You know, let's get past the Graham Thomas period, right? We're mm-hmm. we're at Chelsea. We're starting to cook a little bit now. We're getting mm-hmm. attention. You know, the Royals are showing up at the uh, the the display at Chelsea. Did he mm-hmm. think this? Did he think it would get to this place? Do, do you feel that that he he I would think, see it this big? I think he is such a humble man, and he would be he. I know, I know for a fact from David, you know, every day he is just thrilled and so proud and always, um, you know, so surprised that he's in 35 countries and has such a huge following. And, you know, since his passing, um, uh, corporately, we have just been blown away by the um, care and the sympathy and the wonderful comments and the the touching stories that people have sent to us um, in his praise. And uh, I think it never got old to him. I think he was always um, just completely, each new intro that came out, he was just as excited about as when, you know, he broke through with Constant Spry. Um, but I don't think he ever realized it would get this big. Um, and uh, good, good vision and planning from David Austin Jr. and an amazing support staff there. You know, one thing you have to realize: their goal was never to grow exponentially. Their goal was to create the absolute best garden roses that would get better over time. Um, that was their goal, and their that commitment to excellence is why they have grown. 
Well, and I think this is one of the the common themes I've noticed in the podcast, Rebecca, that that we talk a lot about. And you and I were talking about this before we started a little. I think to be a grower or a great gardener, you have to love the process. You can't just love the day the flower blooms. You have to love the day you plant, the day you fertilize, the day you prune, that that first day. And I often joke with my wife, I get more excited the day the new plants come than the day they flower. And and I think Uh, for anybody that's going to stick with it, that's got to be the mentality. Yes. You know, one thing about our in- industry is we are we are the most hopeful, optimistic people there are out there. And whether it's a seed, a bulb, a bare root plant, we are so happy and excited about the future um, that I think that that exceeds everything. As a matter of fact, so many people in my industry, on the wholesale side of things, we never see the first bloom. You know, you have nurtured these plants, you have uh, repotted them, you pruned them, fertilized, watered, you turn them loose maybe when they're in bud, and then you never see the first bloom. Um, That reward is being passed on to the end, end user. And I think a lot of us are actually okay with that because um, that happiness is being shared, that that uh, desire to keep seeing what happens in the future is being shared. Well, and I keep, if I go back through Instagram from this year, I think for me personally, there was no more exciting, enthusiastic day than my order from David Austin came. And I was so impressed by the quality of the bare root plants. I, I was right. probably more stoked that day, Rebecca, than I was when we were just swimming in cut flowers in, we, <laughs> in August and, we, and September. We, love, we absolutely love to hear that, too. And, you know, that is not unusual. Um, I follow a lot of my customers on Facebook, and I can't tell you, starting in January up through, like, March, that's when we do the bulk of our shipping, even though we ship into May. Um, and I will see... You know the the green and brown David Austin box on their post that says, "Look what arrived today," and um, you know even people who get semi loads, you still say, "The David Austins arrived today." So um, it is it's very exciting for everyone. So so let's draw another parallel here. So we've got Graham Thomas. We're going back to that. We're mm-hmm. sort of using that as our timeline. Rebecca, if you can't tell, we're bouncing back and forth yeah. between subject and timeline. So, yeah. so we're, we're at that place. We're starting to get notoriety. The, the, the firm, which by the way, is one of my favorite phrases used over there to describe yeah. Yeah. any nursery is firm over nursery. Um, right. Starting to do well. Now, what's interesting to me about it is in the United States, where you and I obviously are both from, the mm-hmm. roses are still on another path. We're almost to knockout roses. We are, um, I'll be kind, Rebecca, and say this about the state of American gardening at that time in particular. We're very wow. practical. We're very practical. Mm-hmm. We're becoming very low maintenance. You know, we don't want to do anything at all. Gardening is starting to be replaced by the word landscaping exclusively. When does Austin start to head over to the States? When does that period start to really become a movement for the company? 
right around 2000, uh, I think it was around 99, um, David Austin Jr. suggested that they uh, start in the United States. And really how they started in the U.S. was as a retail website. So what was being grown or brought to the U.S. and being grown was initially only being sold online. And I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that, you know, some of the first stuff that was brought over to the U.S., while there are some amazing varieties in there, and we still plant some of them, some of them weren't the best suited for the U.S. So some of the original David Austins that came over were hit, and some of them tanked. <clears throat> and then we started learning more about, I mean, my heavens, the U.S. market is so huge. So this country is too big, Rebecca. Can we just say that from a gardening <laughs> perspective? I get questions all the time. And I'm Way like, you know, there are so many variables in gardening and growing things. It makes right. it so tough. You know, I'm in just outside of Nashville and mm-hmm. Franklin. Mm-hmm. And I just happen to have this little Glen Valley situation where I have mm-hmm. no true clay at all. I have a very wow. heavy loam where I'm at. I can mm-hmm. go in the back of the property <laughs> with lucky. a spoon and dig about eight feet deep, right? So, right, but right. I, so I tell people, I may be able to go literally a quarter mile that way, and it changes right. completely. And exactly. I, I, I think it for everybody who's listening, put that in perspective, right? We've we're we're in the we're at two thousand now. We've been Mm -hmm. working on hybridizing these roses for the UK for Mm -hmm. upwards of 50 years nearly. And Mm -hmm. now we're going to take on this country that doesn't just have a little bit of a diverse climate. It is the most diverse climate of any huge country out there. Well, and there's a whole USDA hardiness zone that we all shop by. So... When some of the original David Austins came over here, they had to figure out which ones were hardy in what zone. You know, they didn't know was was Gertrude Jekyll, and you can say Gertrude Tickle also, both are correct. Um, how hardy was she? And we know now she is uh, hardy to zone four. And if you do an own root, Gertrude Jekyll or Gertrude Jekyll, whichever you prefer, um, you can even squeeze out a zone three. So um, there was a huge learning curve there that we had to adapt to the U.S. Um, A lot of it was boots on the ground. You know, you'd send stuff out. You'd get feedback. Um, People say, this did really well for me, this tank. We started doing trials. Um, Michael Marriott has just been amazing with sending roses out to... um, significant gardeners around the U.S. and asking for their honest feedback. And, you know, I get to read a lot of those comments, and they, they're wonderful because they'll go, really good, but started struggling. Blew my mind. Didn't expect this one was going to do well, but wow, this is a keeper. Um, and so a lot of it was, you know, kind of seeing how those roses would perform here. One of the things that I have found out about the David Austins, you know, everyone says, ooh, English rose, it must be this delicate, um, precious flower that that has to only live in misty, (laughs) cool climate. 
Well, the Heartland, I came on board in the in 2014, and what I started finding was a lot of the David Austins just thrive in cold winters and hot, hot summers. Thus, the Heartland um, became uh, a wonderful place for them, and a lot of people never thought about buying or selling the David Austins in the middle of the U.S. Um, so when I travel to Missouri, Colorado, you know, um, even Oklahoma, uh, Kansas, places that you thought, you know, are, are David Austin's really going to work, they were, they're thriving and they're doing great. At the same time, down in San Diego, you know, when David was traveling with me, we were visiting customers down there and he marveled at how huge the flowers were there. And, uh, you know, you may be getting uh, four flushes out where up in New England, um, we have another amazing following where the David Austins are still doing great. A lot of the same varieties that are in this main collection that we offer wholesale. Um, So they're handling wildly diverse areas, wildly diverse soil. and Often, you know, now that we've kind of whittled out the varieties that do well in the U.S., sometimes superseding what is going on over in England where they originally came from. Well, and that's something, too, that just from a a gardening practice that I think is a misnomer, the delicate bloom doesn't mean delicate plant. And and this is one of those things that you do have to step back and look at rose species as a bit of a group exactly. and say, exactly. you know, a lot of these rose species that we're talking about, the original parentage of these plants were from some pretty difficult parts of the world to have to grow. Absolutely. In. And Absolutely. Do, you, do you think, and this is something that, that I think you and I probably have a lot of synergy on here that primarily a lot of the growing in the world for plants has happened. Mm-hmm. UK has always been sort of like the the brain of gardening. We'll call mm-hmm. it that. The Pacific Northwest started to do a lot of the growing, especially for the United States of America. Right. And those two climates are thought of as incredibly specific. You know, there there's yeah. really not a lot of, you can't say a lot of other places in the world are similar to them. So it created mm-hmm. this perception that, oh, well, those do well in England. Oh, those do mm-hmm. well in Oregon and Washington. But I live mm-hmm. in a place that it gets hot. And right. we're forgetting those plants don't know where they're at, right? They don't come with a GPS. They're not exactly aware <laughs> where they're at in the world. They're just responding to climate. And their parentage right. was from hot places. They were used yeah. to difficult conditions. So do you think that part of that learning curve has also been people sort of not forgetting that, that despite that that's where the, the grower may have been or David Austin was, that the species of this rose, 95 degrees, is it wasn't going to bat an eyelash to that. You're exactly right. And, you know, <clears throat> if you dig really deep into the parentage of the English roses, um, and you start looking at, all right, where these parents originate from, there is kind of the English old rose hybrids that were as as close to like the Gallicas and Damas, et cetera. Um, 
and then they had those beautiful muted uh, shades of pink and crimson and all, and it's really strong fragrance. Then you had this group of Leander um, group of roses that leans a little more towards the modern roses. Uh, they offer a wider color range. Uh, their fragrance can be really varied. Um, sometimes it's tea or myrrh. Sometimes it can be very fruity. They tend to be very vigorous growers. Then you have uh, something with maybe like an English musk um, parentage. And, uh, you know, uh, like in the south, uh, the Noisset roses um, are from that branch. So that gives you a hint that maybe if something has some musk parentage, it's going to handle a little bit of heat and humidity. Then you have albas and then, you know, climbing, climbing roses and rambling roses. And when you start crossbreeding all of that along with the musk, then you've really got this recipe for interesting offsprings. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So now we're at, I have to ask this question because I was going to, I was curious of, of this part of the timeline. Yeah. This is going to be a real credit, I think, to yourself and everybody at the Austin team across the world, really. Mm-hmm. So we've come to the United States, but we're not too far off from a really cataclysmic shift. And I've mentioned this several times because I think the the point for people isn't, I I took over a large nursery right after this. So immediately after it. So I got to sort of live this firsthand. 2008, 2009 housing crisis. I I don't know if for people who aren't in the horticulture landscape gardening world at that time, how monumentally this devastating it was to the industry. And, and still to this day, you're seeing a lot of ramification because put, put your thinking caps on people. Rebecca and I were talking about the timeline it takes for plants. It, sometimes mm-hmm. seven or eight years is short. So think about that. The housing crisis of 2008, 2009, we're mm-hmm. still only nine years removed from that. So right. in plant speak, it's like yesterday. Right. How did the nursery and the company overall, I think I'll give a huge compliment here to you guys. It feels like you navigated that as a company and a grower better than a lot of others. How, how did that happen, Rebecca? What's your take on we, that? We were fortunate. Well, first of all, as a company, we're not just in the U.S., <clears throat> so we're very diverse. Um, you know, uh, we were in 34 other countries. but. You also have to realize, David Austin, and I'll say this as delicately as I can, we have a slither of the rose market in the U.S. Even though, you know, everyone regards us as the top-tier rose, um, we have a slither of the market share. And the people who were buying from us, the collectors, um, the people with the high-end jobs, uh, the people who are like, you know what, <clears throat> if my money is limited, I'm not going to buy 50 of something. I'm going to buy one or two of something really fabulous that makes me happy. And we were fortunate enough, even though we saw a dip, we were fortunate enough, enough to keep funking away because that quality was there and people had to make a choice decision. And, and so, speak to that for a second also, Rebecca, that I, I think the other thing here, and I see it now with the cut flowers 
Um, and I had Paul Zimmerman on a few weeks ago, which I believe was episode number three, for those of you keeping track at home. Yeah. How large still to this day the cut flower trade for roses are across the world versus the landscape garden category of roses. Just speak to that for a second. Try to put that because you said a sliver of the market. And I think for most people's perception that David Austin is really the, the biggest portion for people that are into gardening, into roses, have an awareness of that. I think that's surprising to people that to to hear you say that, that it's not the the juggernaut in the scale of the overall rose world. Absolutely. Well, you know, um, when you look at, uh, let's talk about far and knockout roses here for just a second. Um, one of the wonderful things that that company did was make people not afraid to grow roses anymore. Um, it, it, you know, from the 1950s in the U.S., like, when I go around and I talk to even my little mom-and-pop nurseries, a little mom-and-pop nursery, it was not uncommon for them to sell 4,000 or 5,000 hybrid teas. And uh, when there became regulations on chemicals, you know, lifestyle started changing, people just didn't have the time or the energy to um, tend to a high-maintenance rose. Uh, they the numbers started falling off. Then the economy changes, the size of a house or a garden changes. Um, a lot of factors come into play. And then this knockout rose comes onto the market. And you basically, it retrains people to think, oh, this is a flowering shrub. This is a landscape shrub. And when you talk to a lot of uh, what I call commodity nurseries or commodity growers, where, you know, they're carrying 20,000 um, uh, knockout roses to plant in huge on a huge commercial site. Um, they, that is their mindset. It's not a rose. It's a uh, flowering shrub that is going to make them look good, uh, especially if they were a designer. So the best thing that that rose did was make people not afraid of roses anymore. And then people started opening up again to looking at other roses. But the one thing that was missing that everyone kind of had forgot about, um, and now we're desiring this fragrance. And David Austin roses are fragrant. So, you know, that was one of our big first draws was, oh, my God, a rose that actually smells like a rose now. So that was a huge draw. Then you have something where... You say, wait, this repeat blooms. I'm not going to get just one flush. So we're repeat blooming. Okay, there's two fantastic things. Now the following is getting stronger, all right? Then you say, wait, disease resistance? I don't have to have an arsenal of chemicals to take care of this rose? You've got to be kidding. And um, so there's three things now. And it's beautiful. It's got these... Most of them are very high petal count. They're these old-fashioned roses that uh, are style flower that just woo, you know, people. Um, so all of those combined, it started chipping away at this very loyal following that was looking for something different that they did not have. Um, 
yes, it's great to have something that flowers nonstop, but uh, when it's not fragrant and it, you know, uh, it, it's not disease resistant or doesn't repeat bloom, then you start looking for something else. Because it's not just about feasting the eyes, you're feasting the soul, too. And I think the David Austins really satisfied the soul. Um, when you want to kind of talk about the, the luxury cuts or the cut flower industry, yes. So then we're going down the timeline and we're saying, you know, let's go out on a limb and think about developing uh, a cut rose that emulates these beautiful garden roses. So that was a trick to breed something that had the vase life, the long stems, it had some fragrance, and it had those beautiful fashion flowers. And that industry is even bigger in the U.S. than it is abroad, believe it oh. or not. And, and how big is, and that's really the scale that I'm trying to set, how big is the cut flower rose industry? in the world versus the gardening landscape rose industry in the world. Just ballpark uh, is Rebecca. Yeah. Um, you know, I I wish I could give you hard fast figures on that. I do not know. I do know that, you know, in Europe <clears throat> people bring home cut flowers for the table just like they do eggs and butter here. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's something that you buy each week or several times a week. I think with the onset of a uh, farmer's market um, and CSAs that have made cut flowers a part of their offering, that is becoming more and more true um, uh, in the U.S., which is wonderful. I think Deborah Prinzing's slow flower move movement has done an amazing job of educating so many people and uh, increasing the need to make things more local and to buy local and make it more accessible to everyone. That is fantastic. Um, but as far as sharing those hard numbers, that's I can't really do that. Um, yeah. I don't well, have I, those I right think in front the, of me. Yeah, I think the thing, Rebecca, that is so interesting, you know, the, the horticulture world has always done – and. Uh, I'm relatively critical at times, Rebecca, but <laughs> hasn't done a great job of sharing itself, you know, in a very right. uh, open, transparent way. And if we're we're, sh we're going across this David Austin timeline, the thing that's fascinating to me is the uphill battle is really where mm -hmm. David Austin is at throughout the timeline. That from right. the beginning, you mentioned hybrid teas. That was what the market wanted. Then even right. into the 2000s, it was really sort of landscape utility in, in America in particular. Right. That that right. was what was wanted. And what really the guiding principle for David Austin Roses has been is this charming, beautiful, disease-resistant, healthy rose that would have all these repeat blooms was not what people were familiar with that whole time, throughout the time. Right. And it's right. always, and it's, it's really, I think, again, to put this in context for people, David Austin Roses, only since 2000 in the United States. It's not that long. You, you know, it's not this huge length of time. And it's just, it's amazing to exactly. see 
that that whimsical, and I'm going to use the word whimsical, Rebecca, that more whimsical, romantic approach to the rose right. and to gardening. Right. And, and I saw somebody say this the other day, and it, it irked me a little, Rebecca, um, the price of David Austin roses. I told you there'd be a toughie in here somewhere. Oh, um, yeah. That well, the price you know, of, of the price of Austin roses was higher than other roses, and I think absolutely. part of the question had a little snark in it related to thinking that this was like a flashy marketing company that had gotten you mm-hmm. guys to this place. When the reality of it is, what really has gotten you to this place is that romantic ideal, not the flashy exactly. marketing, not the price. Yeah. No, well, and you have to you have to look at several factors in this. So let's say 2004, Mr. Austin brought the cut um, uh, to the industry in in the U.S. and that was uh, that was a 15 year program um, to develop the luxury cut flower trade. And so let's go back to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast with the testing. And all of the field trials, um, very few people bring that to the table, and that's not cheap. So all of that trialing costs money. The other thing is you have to remember David Austin doesn't flood the market, so we, you know, you have to to make up money. You're not counting on volume to bring in the cash. So when I sit down with one of my uh, growers or one of my retail garden centers, I always talk to them about pricing and say, listen, you know, it's not unusual for us to be 6 to $10 more than the most expensive patented rows um, that you're selling. Thus, you know, why we can ask, ask that. Um, they're not flooding the market with it. When we're sold out and we sell out after sell out every year, we're sold out. The same thing with um, the luxury cut stems. There is only one grower in the United States that is licensed to grow the luxury cut stems. You know? And of course, you can pull them out of Ecuador from that one licensed grower. And then we have a lot of cut flower farmers that grow the, the garden roses that they buy from us at wholesale, but it's also a very different beast. You don't have the long stems. Um, you don't have the base life. Um, but then you do have, you know, this beautiful flower that's excellent for a one-day event. We normally recommend that to folks. So uh, between all of the R&D and then not flooding the market with it, that's why the price is higher. Well, you know, we're not sitting there just gouging people for the fun of it. Well, and, and, and I think the thing is, the uh, well, you know, and this is a hard, this is an esoteric thought for people, I think, occasionally to comprehend. So, the success of David Austin Roses is in that magical romanticism that we all connect to to a rose. That right. that's that's really what it is, and it's that persistence of David Austin Sr. having that same thing, that that him feeling that way when he's 21 years old and he reads the book on Old Garden Roses, that same thing that sparked his imagination to see if he could try that is what actually has led 
to the success of David Austin Roses. That same thing speaks to the people that grow them. And it's not just a marketing campaign. Because that's one of those moments where you go, you could be the greatest marketing branding agency in the world and not have that same level of success with it if you don't have this other overriding thing that you're you're moving towards. Exactly. And, you know, yes, everyone says your marketing is beautiful. It's elegant. But you'll notice if you, you follow and you get our retail catalogs or you're a, a, a wholesale grower, you'll notice we don't reinvent the wheel. The message is the message. Um, fragrance, repeat bloom, disease resistance, and grace and beauty. That's what we <clears throat> market. And uh, we don't change our look. We don't change our message. It's the same thing that we say every year. But what happens and makes this so powerful is that you, you're photographing these absolutely stunning, gorgeous roses. And they're in a beautiful setting. Um, you're really selling hope. You're, you're selling inspiration. Um, you're selling romance. And these roses can deliver that, too. And I think that the marketing supports the product, then the product supports the marketing. Yeah, I think you're completely right. It's one of the things that I continue to try to preach here, that gardening should be far less practical than it currently is for many people. That mm-hmm. There has got to be more of a whimsy to it. And if and I think what anybody that we, we talked about earlier get, that gets good at it understands is it's the romanticism and the romance that you have with it throughout the year. Not just the end rose, but sticking with that, but also knowing this is really a creative pursuit. And that's one of the other elements that I think separates all good creative people versus short-term creative people. That it's the process of creativity, not just the end of creativity. No one is harsher on their work than creative people. Anything I've ever made in my entire life, Rebecca, I don't like it, right? That's just the (laughs) way it is, right? When you're creative, that's sort of the nature of your endeavors, that you always have this, okay, everyone else loves it, but I'm not a big fan. I'm moving on to the next creative part of my process. That really, David Austin and his personality and that perseverance is still reflected in what you're doing today and, and will presumably always be. And... Now we're in that mid 2000s. We've hit the housing market collapse. You're getting ready to join the company, Rebecca. So they're getting one more awesome person stronger. (laughs) So, where are we at now? Because I want I want us to sort of touch base on two things. And and if you have any feeling of where David Austin Senior was with it at this point, you become incredibly well known in the United States, across Mm -hmm. the world, really. We're we're knee deep in gold medals from Chelsea at this point, Rebecca. You know, we're, right. <laughs> we're knee right. deep in them. We love all of them, but we're knee deep. Where is his thought and the cut flower, the, the grow local, the slow flower movement? That's all started. Where are we at? Like, what's what's the what were his hopes for the future of where he felt roses would go? Because we've covered such incredible ground here that few people 
have seen as much as he saw over the, you know, almost at that stage, we're almost at, you know, 70 years of, of working on this, that did he have any insight on where he thought it was going? Well, yeah, and you know, that's a, an excellent uh, point to put out. So, you know, 2007, um, he really starts racking in the awards. Uh, Mr. Austin was appointed to the Office of um, the Order of British Empire, which is an OBE, and that is a huge, huge honor. And then he uh, you know, was winning these medals at Chelsea and Hampton Court. Um, and then he receives the Victoria Medal of Honor. But he's not resting on that. You have to go back into his head and realize that he's still wanting to breed perfection. Um, and he's not looking for it to happen in one rose. Everything that he's turning out is to kind of solve a niche in the garden. Um, one of the things Mr. Austin used to absolutely abhor was people to say, what's your favorite rose? Because if he released it, he believed in it. And so he never had a favorite, um, but he was always striving for the next best thing. By this time, he's understanding, especially in the U.S., that gardening habits are changing. Um, people don't kind of dawdle around in the garden um, like they used to, and disease resistance is becoming more and more important. Um, he also realizes that people aren't as dedicated to picking and preening like they used to. So he really is focusing now on the tough line of roses that still has the fragrance, that still has the receipt bloom. And there's an amazing thing that comes about um, with the introduction of Olivia Rose Austin. That is something that I think is going to be on the timeline right after Graham Thomas. Because one of the things that we heard that I've not really seen in print so much is that with the genetics and the breeding breakthrough that he made with Olivia Rose Austin, he really became excited about the direction the breeding program was taking. And uh, it has to do with disease resistance. And as you know, you, you think back in the U.S., and you think, really look worldwide, um, organic gardening in uh, Europe means using nothing or using very, very minimal chemicals. Here, people are, are getting on the organic bandwagon. You know, I have customers... Um, in large cities that aren't even allowed to spray. And so with that Olivia Rose Austin, um, with all the new roses that started coming out, he is thrilled with what he's finding. And then we're starting to retire things. So one of the things we hear a lot of people say is, oh, I love so-and-so, why don't you carry it anymore? And this Austin had the humility to realize that even though something was wonderful, sometimes it's time to retire. And in the U.S., Pat Austin, named after his own wife, has been retired because we felt that Lady of Shalott has superseded it. That's huge. You know, L.D. Braithwaite, this gorgeous, gorgeous uh, red, um, is being retired. 
and to say this was wonderful in its time, but now we have something even better. And to start retiring some of these older varieties and continuing to look towards the future is huge. So he was never caught on the past. He was always looking towards the future. Do you think that is one of the the elements of the company? And I'm going to pose a difficult question to you, and you and I are going to have to be the ones that answer this, Rebecca. Do you think David Austin Roses is as successful if David Austin Roses is in somewhere in the United States? I think, well, everyone in England and in Europe knows them. They know everything about them. Um, you know, when, when the rep there walks into a nursery over there or, you know, one of the Austins were to walk into a garden center, it is royalty walking in. So as much as they are loved and as much as they're highly revered, um, people, it's still new here. And, um, the followers are completely 100% they're there. The people who are just learning about them um, are starting, is starting to pick up. So there's huge room for growth here. Uh, I will tell you this. What I found that when someone grows a David Austin, they're loyal. And they'll say, you know what? We had a terrible year. We had a terrible drought. Uh, I had water restrictions. And everything died. Put my lantana in the David Austin. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, and, and, here, here, and this is something else that I think is, um, it's a challenge occasionally. And I've, I've been doing this uh, fun thing on Instagram where I'm going and uh, visiting uh, people that follow me, f- their gardens. I'm visiting their gardens completely just as a fun, create cool content kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the culture of gardening in the United States is severely trailed the UK. And mm-hmm. I think it's that magic and whimsy that sometimes is right. lacking. You know, I would go into uh, when I was running the nursery and we had, you know, almost 400 acres that we were growing. So by no means was it a small production. And I would walk in to some customers uh, on the wholesale side of it. And I was always amazed at the practicality of the conversation and how little of it actually had to do with the habits of the plant. You know, exactly. you, I, would, I would walk in there and I'd want to, I'm just going to pick on, you know, some plants. I, I'd want to walk in and talk about this really awesome, super slow growing Japanese white pine and how in the spring, the new growth comes out with white coloration and there's the pink pollen cones. And I was waiting for that conversation. And instead, it was all the practicals, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if, as a company, how that balancing act, because we do have the UK, which has a little bit more of a romantic approach to the gardening right. world, and the United States, the United States, which has a practical approach to it. How have you guys sort of balance that? And, and, and how do you see that shifting? Or is it a challenge at all? Do you have that same experience? You know, um, it's always interesting because when a a garden center initially carries David Austin, people normally come in and they just ask for, do you have any David Austin? After they've grown them for two or three years, 
Then they go, do you have Lady of Shalott? Do you have Woolerton Hall? Do you have Olivia Rose Austin? They start asking for them by name. Uh, one of the other things I will tell you is that garden centers carry the David Austin brand to add, to break up that monotony, to add that romance and that whimsy in there. Um, so often it's the mentality, and I'm, I'm sorry to say this, um, I'm probably going to make some people upset, but um, a lot of the thought that a lot of garden centers have is get it in and get it out. You know, uh, with roses in the United States, basically <clears throat> there's the whole Mother's Day push. You know, we got to make that Mother's Day sale. Then it's the by Father's Day. Most garden centers, and it has to do with maintenance, it has to do with money, um, it has to do with taking care of the plant, pruning the plant. By the 4th of July, they want all roses gone. And so you have to realize, and, and the consumer has to realize, because I get asked all the time, why can't I buy a rose in, the, in fall when it's mm. really the best time to plant it? Well, our industry has decided for you that that's not practical. We've got other crops that need to fill that space during that time. You know, we've got to get the moms down there. So it doesn't always make sense. When you go to a grower uh, like Otto and Sons that's on the West Coast or, um, uh, you know, some someone like Roseland on the East Coast, that all they do is grow ro- roses or fruit. They, you can get that rose any time of year, but you really have to find someone who is specific to just that, just roses to, to find that. So as an industry, we've created a lot of that, let's be practical, let's get it in, let's get it out. Um, and it's not always the best thing for the consumer. And, and, I've had this conversation with our growers and the nursery folks, and they know it's true, but then they're faced with bringing in that other product. Well, and I think that is one of the things that I, I've really tried to preach to people repeatedly. We we are entering in, and I think this is this is a fair comment for any industry, the advent of technology, which is the other thing, too, mm-hmm. that, that is also interesting. Talk about somebody, and this is really... Uh, in last week's podcast, I, I touched on this, Rebecca. One of the greatest things I think about the life of David Austin Sr. is to have seen literally so much, not only for roses, but the world at large, and to also have the opportunity to have seen the thing he was so passionate and persistent about actually get to success. So many people don't have that opportunity that it's sometimes unfortunately for them their success of what they were working on doesn't happen until after they've passed, that he has seen the whole process. He, you know, he's seen his roses. He's seen the success of the company in his own life. And now we're at a time where all industries are still being reorganized by the advent of technology. And one of my hopes is, and I'm sure you would, you would probably nod your head with me on this, Rebecca, but I am hopeful that through social media, through there being so much visual media for people to consume out there, that it's going to put a little bit of pressure on the nursery 
horticulture world at large to do some of these things that we're talking about to because the consumer will become hopefully more educated on some of these subjects and it will put a little pressure there to provide roses at different times of year to s- supply more unique varieties not just the very traditional practical approach to it do you see any of that over these last three or four years that maybe some customers that had maybe been a little bit more practical in the united states maybe getting a little bit more creative because of the actual consumer influence that we're seeing absolutely well i'm going to tell you this and this will case in point exactly what you're talking about I was at IGC, that is the Independent um, Garden Center Trade Show in Chicago, two years ago. And this gentleman walked up to me, did not look like he belonged in the, uh, that trade show at all, <laughs> and uh, had a clipboard in his hand, and he said, you're David Austin Roses? And I said, Yeah. And he said, I want to carry your product. And I said, well, tell me who you are and and why you want to carry our product. And he said, I'm with Amazon. And I said, you are? And uh, he said, yes. And I said, what do you know about the rose business? How do you think our roses are made available? And he said, I don't know, but I need to carry them. And I was like, why do you need to carry them? And he said, because you're one of our most searched for SKUs and Mm. we don't know how to get our hands on you. And so it's been interesting. You know, we pass, we don't really have the fulfillment to provide to him, but I know that some of our customers who uh, we sell to are providing to to Amazon indirectly. And um, it opens kind of a whole nother interesting uh, case for policing quality. Um, you know, we have no problem with that. Um, but we know we also have our own, uh, davidaustinroses.com that where we ship, uh, bare roots from. So how is it going to be shipped? You know, you shouldn't be shipping a live rose to the South in July because you know it's going to harm it in the shipping process. But that shows you right there that the consumer is driving how we're going to have to sell. Absolutely. And and when they want it. The people who shop on Amazon, I'm a big Amazon shopper. When I decide I want something, I want it right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that is definitely going to drive it. And it's it's an area that some of our customers have already started working with, but there's going to be huge room for improvement with it too. You know, many people this year asked me to sell dahlia tubers. And my belief on this is, and maybe this is the the strategic branding analysis person in me, Rebecca, coming through, but the the expectation now for shipping is Amazon. And for most companies, that's unrealistic. It's only through Amazon's, oh, I don't know, the last 20 years of (laughs) Jeff Bezos buying robotics companies and creating this infrastructure for fulfillment that allows them to literally, in the case here in Nashville, and I'm sure for you too in Washington State, obviously, we have many products now that are literally same-day delivery. And for a small, and and when you use the word small now, you have to be careful. Uh, Anything not the size of Amazon, (laughs) it is impossible to do that same thing. 
So I, I think clearly there is a big challenge in front of anyone in the plant world who wants to try to get to that. And the thing that I loved about what you said, and I want you to touch on this because I'm going to segue us into this. You mentioned this to me on the phone the other day, the quality, the policing of it. And you had mentioned how one of the things for David Austin that he was not as concerned about was, and this is something that many people probably don't know, that plants in the garden center at the retail side of it sometimes can look very tidy and very nice, but many times they've been manipulated to look that way, even through the use of uh, growth inhibitors and to create this very nice, tidy package in your garden center. But when you get it home and put it in the garden, not the same, completely different, not a good plant in the garden long-term. So talk Mm -hmm. about that element of quality control that, you know, it's not just like what we're talking about that first day in the garden center that you meet it eye to eye, but it's two, three years and forever. Right. Well, here, here's the thing. Mr. Austin was never concerned about the appearance of the rose in the pot. Now, let me qualify that. Yes, it's got to look healthy. Yes, it's great if it's in bud or in bloom. Um, but he did not breed plants to have impulse viability. <laughs> he bred plants that the day you bought it was probably the least desirable day it was going to be. He wanted it to get better after year one, year two, year three. By year five, you're just wild and so thrilled with the product. A lot of plants look the best the day you buy them, and then they decline over time. Um, you know, I've had folks say, can I use growth regulators on this? Some, you know, your plants are pretty vigorous. They get gangly. Uh, we, you know, we're not going to say, no, you can't, but we'd prefer you prune and, and shape them up that way. Um, so they tell a little bit truer story about uh, what's, what's going in the garden. But, uh, yeah, the whole quality thing, Mr. Austin is committed and that whole team is committed to how does it look in the garden a year from now, two years from now, later on. Um, They could care less. As long as the plant looks healthy um, when it's for sale and, you know, it's budded up well, they don't breed it to look good on the shelf. They breed it to look good in the garden. Now, as we wrap up here, Rebecca, I have three things written down that I want you to say so I don't have to say them, right? These are <laughs> these are things that if you say them as a representative of David Austin Roses, it'll sound better than if I say it. <laughs> I have seen some people in the, the universe of plants, they seem to be fond of making snap judgments on young plants. Okay, mm-hmm. we get a young David Austin rose. We put it in the ground this spring. And after that first flush, we're trying to make all the judgments in the world. It's not mm-hmm. this. Oh, I thought it'd be this. I thought it would be this. Maybe I thought it was this. Whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. What's a fair timeline? Like, like as a gardener at home, someone buys a rose, they plant it. When should they make a decision? You know, if they have questions, you know, is that first year? Is it that second year? When do you think they really sort of know what they have? Well, I'm going to tell you, you know, whether it's our plant or someone else's, you, it is so wrong to make a, a snap 
judgment after one year. Um, really, in year two, by by the middle of the season, the plant is just starting to settle in. By year three, you really are understanding what you have. Um, I will also tell you this. You know, we have a, a rose called the Lady Gardener that is very floriferous. And depending on where it is planted, what the soil conditions are, what the climate is like, sometimes it will be more pink, sometimes more apricot, more shell pink. Um, and sometimes it's very fragrant, sometimes it's not so fragrant. That is a, a plant that I have seen in my own garden that once it settled in, it really became everything we said it was going to say. Poet's wife just won um, best rose at the Portland uh, uh, Rose Trials. And the first year that it was on the market, I wasn't that wild about the poet's wife. I love it now. It has settled in in my garden. It's in year two. It flowered nonstop. It was by a variety that had more powdery mildew. Spotless. It looked amazing the entire season and was still throwing blooms right around Thanksgiving. So you have to give it time to settle in. You can't put something in. It's not an annual, <laughs> you know. You you have to give it time to settle in and, uh, you know, become its own plant. Now, this is a very geeky question. and I know you know Paul. Paul and I talked about this. Uh, own roses continue to look like that is the future of where roses yeah. are continuing to go. Is, is that true? Uh, do you think there's a timeline on that as far as when we're going to see the market almost be exclusively on root roses? You know, I don't think it will. Well, for us, I don't think it will uh, become 100% exclusive. I do see that um, everyone, if they can get a own root rose, they prefer it. You know, the whole argument for grafted is that you get a, a bigger flowers your first year. I've had people in the south, in hot areas, uh, Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, even your area say, oh, well, I have to have a grafted rose because it's going to tolerate the heat better. Um, well, some folks that I know grew some own root roses and they were like, wow, this did just fine. Um, David Alston does not offer everything as en route because there are some varieties that actually do a little better being grafted. And so if it's not offered en route, it's because we know it does better grafted. But you are definitely correct. Uh, I think most people, especially as they become more educated, they like the idea of an en route product. I'm a fan of en route. Um, if you're in a cold area, a known root rose can get killed down to the ground and come back true. So what's not to like about that? No. It, and then here, here's the other one for you. So every year, okay. traditionally, at Chelsea, David Austin has released three to four new varieties, typically. Yeah. Give me the out of how many seedlings that typically those three to four are chosen out of. Oh my gosh! Um, you know it could be around ninety thousand seedlings. I've seen a hundred and twenty thousand. I've seen numbers saying ninety thousand. Um, 
there's about 40,000 hand pollinations that happen each year. Um, and I will tell you this, now that the team feels like they're perfecting uh, what they're doing and they know a little bit more, they're not doing as high across uh, counts as they were a long time ago, but still doing 90,000 seedlings. Um, 8,000 of which will go forward to the field trial, and then you pick two or three varieties to release, that's phenomenal. That's And how late, I know in the last couple of years, David Austin Sr.'s health wasn't the best, but how mm-hmm. late in life was he still actively involved in that? Because clearly, anybody that's aware of the history or the person, that was really his passion. The, the tinkering with roses continue. There, was, there wasn't a, a, a time where that was like, nah, not today. He was, he was actively making decisions, to the best of my knowledge, up until just a few weeks before he passed wow. away. Um, I know David would have lunch with him every day. Um, I had heard that he was down to three days a week in the office. He knew exactly what was going on. He was making the call. He set forth his vision. Um, we know pretty much what we're going to be trialing and going with 10 plus years out. Um, so he had his finger on everything. And, uh, you know, we are all very, very committed to seeing that uh, his goals are carried out. And can, his mission's can, carried out, so it's very exciting. Now, and I'm not, I can tell you, I'm not oh, the best ahead. at I'm, I'm not the best at math, Rebecca. People have seen me on Instagram <laughs> do this, but think about this for a second, right? Well, let's ballpark this, right? Just between you, I, and the audience here. Let's say eight to nine thousand roses were culled from those seedlings by David Austin right. Senior, and we've been doing this for sixty years, right? The sheer volume. In that alone, that we're the number million we're near, yes, is absurd. And you said that just domestically in the U.S., how many roses cultivars do you offer in the U.S. domestically? Uh, for 2019, we are right around 60, 63. 63 out of two yeah. a million cold seedlings. Yes, yeah, so I look mean, at the scope of that. That's incredible. And the fact that for you and I probably, or anybody else that's really into roses, how many of the roses that he didn't pick would we probably drool over, right? (laughs) You would. When I went over there to interview for this position, we were walking through the trial fields and I actually picked up one of the roses that he decided not to carry. It was was a, a Chelsea contender. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And they're like, yep, we just sent that one to the trash heap. We're going to dig it up next week. And it was fantastic. But there was something about it that did not fit all of his criteria. You can be close. You can hit it in years two, three, eight. But let's say on that final year or something happened in year seven that he didn't like or that he saw. Or the petal didn't let the light pass through it the way he was hoping for. Bye-bye. It was over. And, um, you know, when I was there to to help with their open house, 
David Jr. was walking the field. And mercilessly, you know, keep, no, 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 keep. And you just have to stay focused on what it is that you're about. Which, which is just incredible. Okay. Now one last thing, Rebecca, that I want us to do here, because I'm, I'm guessing, this is me making a guess and assumption, that one of the other things that would have made David Austin happy is despite David Austin being known for the very heavy petaled count roses, mm-hmm. that there are other roses in the catalog, fighting uh, Temerea being one of them I can think of off the top of my head, Absolutely. that are the heavy petaled count. And I'm sure he was no less passionate about those roses as the heavy petal count ones. Is that something that moving forward that maybe David Austin as a company would maybe like to to broaden the scope of, to not just be thought of as exclusively this like heavy petaled English garden style? That's the the style in finger quotes, Rebecca, if you could see me, I'm making them, that people perceive David Austin for, that there are others in there. Absolutely. He picked it for a reason. And, you know, we have customers that make a tremendous mistake. All David Austin's are fragrant. And they have a fragrance rating between two and five. Um, and I'll have customers that say, I only want ra- roses that with a fragrance rating of four and five. Well, what they don't always realize, and this is a whole other podcast, but I'm going to open this up. They actually have someone come through, and just as you would grade and uh, uh, kind of categorize a wine, uh, the roses are graded and categorized this way. Uh, so something with a fragrance rating of two often has a very light apple or pear fragrance. Something that is very strong and heady uh, is like an old rose fragrance like Gertrude Jekyll. Um, of course, your nose is going to pick up on that immediately. But um, we have people that will be like, no, David Austin's are all strong fragrance roses. No, David Austin roses all are fragrant. And some may be a light fruity fragrance. Some may smell like raspberry. Some may be myrrh or musk. Some may be a China tea fragrance. Some may be an old rose fragrance. So that goes hand in hand with that petal count like Imogen, which is coming out this year. Only a fragrance rating of two. Um, You know, a lower petal count, but we're hearing that it does in high heat and humidity areas really, really well. Um, Old Doll that is coming out. Only a fragrance rating of three. But... I'm hearing from um, our operations manager in the UK that that rose is really now coming to its own in the garden, and it is so floriferous, and the flowers are so charming that it just uh, really wins your heart, Um, but it's an an excellent performer. So, um, you know, you can't say that they're all a super high petal count. High, yes, but it is how the petals are held, that they're all graceful and they're all charming. That is what makes them beautiful. I think charming is always the word that we hear with David Austin Roses. But really, the the man was a pretty charmed life, ultimately, Rebecca. So it really is a, a, a mag... I watch a lot because, you know, in America, sadly, 
Rebecca, you know this, we don't have a lot of gardening content on anywhere in the world, but one right. of the, uh, the great BBC series on gardening uh, that went through like Great Dixter and some of the, the great gardens of the UK. I really think there isn't another person that strikes me in the last 75, 80 years that is the same as David Austin, ultimately will be remembered as and is remembered as in the gardening horticulture world. That that, that story I, is so unbelievably captivating. It is. It is. And, and you know, people say what, what makes, um, why are people so enamored by this? If, if you're not buying a rose, you're buying a story, you're buying history, you're buying passion. Um, and, you know, we, we all salute uh, his career that was spanned a little over 70 years. It's just amazing. Look out my window, what do I see? A little bluebird looking back at me. He sings a song all alone in his nest, and I wonder if he's singing about loneliness. I open my window and take it all in as I listen to a number by my new blue friend. Is he looking for a lover or did one just leave? Does he really feel blue or does his color deceive? Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings a somber tune? Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird blue? A hummingbird don't hang around too long A mockingbird makes a living off of other bird songs And I heard somewhere that a robin weeps But the bluebird is still one that I can't read Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings a somber tune? Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird in blue? Yeah, spring is out and there's love in the air And I know that I've got plenty to share The bluebird's blue and but it's so in my hand I feel about as low as the bluebird flies Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings a somber tune? Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird, why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings a somber tune? Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell